Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yes! Happy Saturday! Welcome to All the Things. I'm Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. These are our Bibles, in case you're wondering. There's a lot of Bibles. Going to talk about that tonight. Yes. Yes. Welcome to All the Things, the show where we talk about all things related to God, life, and the Bible. And the Bible. Yeah. Or many Bibles. Lots of Bibles. Yeah. And helping us this week and every week is Bob Bontrager, adjusting his camera. There he is. Woo! Gotta push the right button. Yes. Hello, guys. Hello. <laughs> and let me tell you, there are a lot of buttons. There are. There are juggle. a lot of buttons. Yes, we are grateful for Bob's service to us tonight and every night. Every night? Every day? <laughs> yes. There it is. And today, our, tonight, our guest moderator on the show is the one and only Laura Hartley. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Yes, yes. And tell us that you're watching. It's glad to see everybody jumping on YouTube. You can join us on the live chat on YouTube or on Facebook. Uh, we always like to see who's checking in and all of our Saturday night friends. Glad to yes. see you. Good to see everybody. Yes. yes. All right. And now if you are on YouTube, please let us know where you're from, like you're doing. Also, yeah. I will be on Facebook. You can go to the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page or Theology Mom Facebook page. So if you want to troll Monique, go over there. Uh, no need to troll that. <laughs> So also, we really need your help to support the show. Uh, this is the audience participation part. Yes, is please do participate. The, the thumbs up, uh, like the show, share the show, click on that share button, comment on the show. All of these things help our algorithms. Yes. And boy, do our algorithms need help. <laughs> so please help us spread the word on the show. So. Yes, because shadow banning is real. It's like we put out a post and it gets to like, 10 people. It's really <laughs> like, sad. Wait, I thought we had 12,000 followers. Yeah. This post really went to 200 people. So, yes, we Very need your sad. help. Um, this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. That would be us. Theology Mom and Family 210 Clothing. And Christmas is coming. Yes. Get so, a sweatshirt or a shirt. Oh, look. Yes. So, we have all sizes, kid sizes, and baby onesies. <laughs> baby onesies. Holidays are coming. We've got also some, um, those are all our CFBU uh, shirts, but we have a lot of other shirts there up on the Family 210 uh, um, page. And you yes. can, uh, so great gifts you, the, to just uh, share some positive biblical messages uh, with friends and family or for yourself. Last year, I think Laura got a couple of things from, Family 210 and yes. her family do some shopping for her there. So. I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. I'm wearing my own sweatshirt. That's see? right. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. So we should probably say a quick word here about our calendar for 2021. Yes. How about we do that? What's happening? Well, in January. Oh, January. It's a mess. Yes. January is <laughs> a little crazy. Um, January, we have the WIA conference. We have something else in January. We have... We- we have a couple things a couple in January. Things. Um, it's on the calendar. The WIA conference is there, yes. Yeah. And then in February, we have Joe Miller's conference down in San Diego. San Diego. In March, we have, oh, January is, um, we're going up to San Jose in January as oh, well. Yes. Okay. And then in March, we're doing a conference in New Jersey. 
I believe it is. I believe it's New Jersey. So, you guys, we are traveling. We know that the world is trying to lose its mind and shut down, but we're not doing that. <laughs> we said no. We are open to travel. So, reach out, call us, or tell tell your friends about us, tell your pastors about us in case they are looking to have tra- um, trainings or have us come out to talk about more sane ways to discuss biblical race, unity, and justice. That's right. So... All of that you can go to the best way to get connected is go to centerforbiblicalunity.com and click on speaking. Yes, click on it. Then you can request your friendly neighborhood expert. Both of us, folks. (laughs) Both of us. Okay, so um, let's get into it. You you might be wondering why we have all of these Bibles. Bibles. Yes, I went through the house tonight right before the show. And collected a bunch of Bibles. Uh, so we got the uh, uh, Bob's favorite during our family Bible time is the the um, Living Translation, New Living Translation. I took it out of its handy dandy case, but there's oh, that. Oh, you did. Yeah. I was I was like I've never seen that before, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So this is mine uh, that I use. It's actually Bob and mine together. It says the Bontragers on the front. Woo! There it is. This was the Bible I gave Bob on our wedding. Oh. And this is my everyday Bible, and I've used this for teaching for 25 plus years. We have the chronological Bible. It was like broken, the Bible broken down and reorganized chronologically into okay. daily readings. Got the ever controversial Passion Translation. Oh. Right here. Going to talk about that maybe a little later. We've got the New American Standard Version. This is what I got when I graduated from seminary. Viola just sent me that same Bible like last week. <laughs> and Talbot, I got this That's when I graduated from Talbot the first time. So, uh, yeah, it says right in here, December 15th, 1995. That was when I graduated from seminary the first time. Wow. Second time I didn't get to walk because I was eight months pregnant. Wow. <laughs> so, then I got my Orthodox study Bible given to me by my very good friend, Anastasia Young. And this was hers. And she just gave it to me as a gift. Well, that's awesome. So, yeah, so I got, we got lots of Bibles here. So one of the most common questions I get is which one is the best one? And I know that people have been saying like, hey, I want to buy a Bible for a friend or family member for Christmas. Mm-hmm. How do I choose? So I thought it'd be fun if we do kind of a practical how-to show. I agree. One of the things that we had to do for my seminary class, hermeneutics, was actually do a compare and contrast through many different translations. I think we ended up looking at six or seven different translations, all the way from like the message and the passion to the King James, New King James, um, New American Standard, and everything in between. You know what? I have a little elf. I have your homework. We're going to show your homework later. There's that. There's that. Thankfully, I get good grades. (laughs) Thankfully, I get good grades. Show her, so, show everyone your translation process. Yes, but it's interesting once you begin to really look deep into them, how even one word can really change the whole context of a verse or a passage. So we're already getting some questions here. Uh, our friend Susanna says, where is the NRSV? I do like the NRSV. I usually access that using Bible Gateway. I don't actually have a physical copy of that one but it is a good it is a good translation we'll see where that falls in the uh the lineup yes of what kind of it what about the new world translation so jamie glad to have you here um i have never heard of that that is a translation that is 
uh, published by the, the Watchtower Society. Um, our friend Cynthia Hampton uh, shared our show tonight with many of her friends who are either in the Jehovah's Witnesses or um, have left. And hmm. so some of them might be tuning in tonight. So, mm -hmm. yes, that is a translation um, that is published by the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, so now I love that we are learning vicariously through Monique. <laughs> yeah, don't play no games, y'all. Yeah, my husband used it's... to always joke about that when I was in seminary. He says, I feel like I'm getting a master's degree by osmosis through you. Because I, I would come come home and I'd be like all excited and tell him all the things I was learning. and Oh. So he really needs like a diploma that says, I learned through osmosis. Well, there that is. We can have a diploma for all our viewers that are learning vicariously through you. Yes, there, there's <laughs> so much to learn. There's so many things I didn't realize I was just completely unaware of um, in regards to understanding like biblical texts and how you actually interpret or get the true meaning of what the text means. Yeah. Like the fact that I need to be understanding the Bible from the author's perspective and the readers that would originally be reading the text, not from my own viewpoint first i was like mind blown but this is written ex especially to me what are you talking about <laughs> of course this is for me i remember those conversations he early was like, on yeah dr cash was like no no actually it's not it's written for them and then you know you get to benefit from it and dr cash if you happen to watch this episode can you please tell me if you're related to johnny cash dr cash if you happen to watch because this episode can you for please me? just pass me <laughs> please Okay. Thank you. Dr. Cash and I were in seminary together. He probably doesn't remember me. That's but, not uh, true. We served on AS Council together. I think he was the president. I was the vice president. And we were young. <laughs> okay, let's keep All going. Right. We have no time for memory lane. Okay. Because I have a paper you to write. Me. I, I'm yes. very nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, I have a paper to write, people. This show will go till 7 o'clock. 6.59 and 59 seconds. And then I got a final. Okay, so maybe we should start with what languages is the Bible written in? It is written in Hebrew. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Old Testament. Uh-huh. And then it's written in Greek. Yes, those are the two. Now, there is a third language in there. It starts with a K. No. No? Okay, never mind. Oh, no, never mind. <laughs> I haven't um, gotten that far. Wait, so there's Greek, there's Hebrew, and then there's Ara Aramaic. Aramaic. Yeah. Aramaic. So Aramaic, it was kind of a later form of Hebrew. Um, it's a derivative of Hebrew, and that was actually what Jesus and the Apostles probably spoke in their everyday life or or um and we do get some hints of that in the text there are some sections of the book of daniel that are written in aramaic and so it's a derivative of hebrew but it is it's kind of own distinct um mm -hmm. language or dialect um but we see you think that few... they would talk in aramaic when like the romans would walk by maybe and be like Shh, that's wrong jesus wasn't sideways he wasn't sideways i mean like my in-laws they would they worked at this Oregon school for the deaf and when well, the kids were around at Christmas, they'd be signing. That's funny. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so yes, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. And the type of Greek that would have been used is called Middle Greek or Koine Greek. It was the common language. And what's really cool about uh, Greek is that it was sort of the, the worldwide in a limited sense language of the Roman Empire. And it was kind of a great unifier that happened during the conquest of Alexander the Great. And so if there was one common language, it was 
the language that could business could be transacted in. So everyone kind of spoke at least two languages. Um, Greek was the the public language, and then the Jewish people had their had Aramaic, and then they'd go to the synagogue and have Hebrew. So they would, you know, the different contexts would require different languages. Okay. So, so then I guess part of the question is is one, are there certain sections of the Bible that are just written in Greek and just written in Aramaic in the New Testament? Or is it just kind of more like a fluid blend? So the New Testament is definitely written in Greek. There are a few Aramaic words sprinkled here and there, like Abba for father. And and they would translate them. What Jesus says on the cross, um, the gospel writers translate it. it. It was first in Aramaic. So that's there and then there's this whole conversation we'll talk about later um but there's this this whole conversation about was aramaic underneath the greek new testament was there sort of um because jesus probably did all his teachings in aramaic first and then they were translated into greek so that's a whole other kind of conversation but now let's jump in even more so should christians even be trying to use um translations at all or should we be trying to go back and take hermeneutics classes and and greek and hebrew classes to understand what's really being said in the original language yeah that's a really important question because our muslim i'm glad i thought of it yeah (laughs) well our muslim friends would in in their holy book the quran um, they don't really like to use translations. Now, you can go to Barnes & Noble and buy an English translation, but for them, that's not like the supernaturally um, divine-sourced book. If you really want to read the Quran in its most divine way, you you want to read it in Arabic. And so that's the way that it's read in their worship services, that's it's how they pray. Um, so for them, translations kind of water things down. Now, Jews and, and Christians have kind of thought about that a little differently. So we even see about one to 200 years before Jesus lived, um, the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek hmm. and it's called the Septuagint. And it was because many of the the Jews were spread out over the Greco-Roman Empire and they didn't necessarily speak Hebrew anymore. So there was a group of 70 scholars. That's why it's called the Septuagint. It means the 70, these 70 Jewish scholars who got together and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into the common language of the people, which was Greek. And that became the Bible that was used, the Bible, if you will, that was used by Jesus and the apostles. So when, when Jesus and the apostles quote from the Old Testament, they're quoting from the Septuagint. They're quoting from that Greek translation. So to me, that's a good signal that God's kind of okay with translations. You can, you can do an adequate job in a good translation to get across the main the main point do do scholars um ever believe or has it ever been researched to make sure that everything that was in the original hebrew actually made it over to the in the septuagint yeah that's a really good question so Uh, again (laughs) 
I'm glad I came up with it. So that sort of takes us into a different conversation, which we could have some time about textual criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, an- the short answer is yes. That is like a whole academic discipline where, you know, um, the Hebrew manuscripts are compared with the the Greek translation of the Old Testament and that sort of thing. So definitely. But that's why um, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were such an important archaeological discovery was that it really kind of helped solidify what those Hebrew copies um, entailed. So hopefully that helps. Um, Thanks. Now, you might have a little rant here. Do I ever? Yes. Well, no, sometimes you know, I do. I, yes, sometimes I do. You, you don't like my little <laughs> No, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, Susanna's asking about the Latin. We're going to get there in just a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about how the Bible came to be in Latin. Um, so here's the thing. Um, I have kind of a little soapbox about the fact that American Christians in particular are so limited with their English translations. Like there's many people that don't ever take the time to even try to learn the languages beneath the scriptures of Hebrew or Greek. And I guess a question I've had for a really long time is why don't we do that? Why don't we teach our young people or people in the church, like, why don't churches have classes on Greek and Hebrew? Because nobody speaks those languages. But but here's the thing is that if, if I were growing up in a Jewish family, mm-hmm. there would be an expectation that I would go to, like, what do they call it? Like, it's not confirmation, a mm-hmm. bar mitzvah mm-hmm. or something. That I would have some mastery of how to read some basic Hebrew and how to do some chants and how to pronounce the words and how to read the scriptures that I would have a, at least like a basic functional understanding of the language. And, and, and this is, this is just an expected part of their culture. If I was growing up in a Greek Orthodox family, I would be expected to go to after school classes and learn some Greek. Um, so that tells me that obviously like no child is going to be harmed by learning these things like you know it, it, it's just is it because we have such low educational standards as christians like what what is it that we have no expectation of our young people i mean even in the classical homeschool realm latin is so pushed but when i was homeschooling my kids i didn't actually go the latin route i tried teaching them greek because i actually thought that was far more practical so that they could know if a pastor was trying to bamboozle them by saying, well, it says this and this in the Greek. I just wanted my kids to be functionally literate enough so they could check. I think you bring up a good point. I also think, though, that in your examples, the what I see is that these things go with the culture. So... As as a Jewish child, I would go to Hebrew school as part of my culture, yeah. not necessarily as well in Judaism. It's the culture and the religion are the right. same. But, in, but like with the Greek Orthodox, I'm going to school because of my culture. I don't know that I am like in America. I'm an American. And so I speak English. And so I'm being taught in the language that is a part of my culture. 
that's just, I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily about but, like but, a, a lower expectation for children's education. I just wonder if it's a more, more so about our culture, like in South Africa, kids who um, are raised more in English because you either are English or Afrikaans and kids who are raised in English families can go to school and take Afrikaans yeah. as part of the culture so that they know the, the mother tongue. But shouldn't that be part of building a Christian culture in a local church or to have a church like partner with other churches and at least like have it as a possibility? Like, how are we? Couldn't that be part of a church culture? You know, like what kind of culture are we building? It's just a question I've reflected on over the years. I think it's a good question. I don't know that I would say that it should be as part of the the culture because our culture is English by and large. But I would say that, you know, to be able to exegete the scriptures properly, we bring this in to teach you a foundation. I just don't know that I agree with it. Like as, as a culture, because in our culture, we speak English. Right. But in church culture, like we're sort of bicultural if we're Christians, you know, we live in our, you know, human culture, but then we have our Christian culture. I guess it's just something I've thought about over the years is like, I wonder how that would benefit young people because they're obviously capable of that. No, I, I agree. I so, think it's a good question to to ponder through. And, to, and I'm not saying it wouldn't help us. I think that it would be extremely beneficial to know how to go back and dig into the original Cause, context. Because look, here's the thing is like high school students today, they take all these AP classes. They're very hard. AP US history, AP biology. They have high academic expectations. But when we get to the church, the kind of culture that we build is let's just have fun. You know, we don't really teach them about the faith. Like, why? I'm just questioning. Mm-hmm. I'm just asking the question, like, why yeah, is that? No. That just doesn't seem to match, you know, like, well, we have this academic expectation over here that's really high. Mm-hmm. But we have almost no expectations when it comes to learning about the faith. I don't know. Yeah, so, I can see that. All right. Well, let's move on. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the journey of the Bible in the West, because um, that's really what affects most of us. So the, the, the Bible of the Apostles was the Septuagint. And then as someone was asking um, in the chat, what about the Latin? Well, what happens is that in the West... Uh, the Bible gets translated into Latin in about the 400s mm. by, uh, by a guy named Jerome. And he translates what? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Sorry. There used to, this is such a tangent, but it used to be this, this show called Martin. And he was like, <laughs> Jerome, never mind. If you know, then you know. But I, I said Jerome in the house. <laughs> I can't even. It's sorry. Why the Bible translate? Never mind. Just keep going, people. Keep going. Keep going. Saint Jerome. Saint Jerome. Yes. Translated going. the Bible into Latin, and then eventually we get to the Reformation um, in the West. So Martin Luther and all of that. So that is kind of the journey in in the West. Let's see where we're at with the uh... Canadian cancer. I know. Oh, see. Jerome and you have you have a friend there yes so bad it's so bad okay keep going all right reformation get to the west yes okay so now do you remember several weeks ago when we had the guest we talked about Martin Luther and one of his big projects was translating the bible into German the the common language of the people Mm -hmm. 
So that was a big um, step because no longer was Latin the primary language of the people. Um, during the medieval period, you know, everyone was speaking Latin. But then when we get to the Reformation period, you know, people are more um, in their own countries and they have their own regional languages. So Martin Luther undergoes this project of translating the Bible into the common language of the people of German. So the, the question is, that then becomes one of the key features of the Protestant Reformation is the Bible then gets translated into French and English and all of these other languages to be the common language of the people. And that's where we really start seeing um, that effort, you know, really comes out of the, the Protestant Reformation. Meanwhile, in the East, they're prima- primarily still using the, the Septuagint. So... Okay, what are you going to say? You just I, I, got, just, I have so many you're questions. Not, like, I don't even know what you're doing right now. I'm listening, and okay. it, it just built so many questions right, well, about others. It's not for this show, but it is. It, it, just, it, it just makes me think of many other questions that I think would be pertinent to this conversation, but like in a part two. Like, so, oops, sorry. So what about, what about people who were farther away and didn't live in some of these, these areas? Is the assumption just that Christianity hadn't made it to them yet? Oh, no. No, it, it had. Okay. Yeah. But they didn't have, they just didn't have a Bible or any no, kind of no, word. They, no, they did. I'm just, like I said, I'm just focusing on the West because that's where we're from. I know, but I'm talking <laughs> about the West too. What West? Are you talking about India or Africa? What are we talking about? I'm Like North America. <laughs> Well, the gospel doesn't come to North America until um, after the Reformation. So they didn't have they didn't have scripture then. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, not yet. So did did they have any understanding of Christianity or of Judaism or anything like that before that time? Are you talking about like like the the First Nations people? Yes. N- n- uh, not to my knowledge. Okay, no. this is all. That's all I want to know. Want to yeah. know what about the other people? Can't just be leaving folk out. Yeah. Keep going, please. Sorry, I told you it was a tangent for another season. <laughs> Sorry, this is this is bad. Keep going. All right. Okay, so let's talk about um, this graphic I've got here. Okay, so I got this from a, uh, a gentleman that gave us permission to use this, which was very generous of him. I told him I would give him a strong shout out. It's from WesleyHuff.com. He had a great blog post that I'm going to put in the show notes. I'll have Allison, our production assistant, put in the show notes and he has a great blog post called one Bible, many versions. And this Mm. is um, a graphic that he created and it particularly focuses on the, the journey of the Bible um, in Europe uh, around the time of the reformation and after. But what I want you to see here is the Wycliffe Bible over at the left is in the late 1300s. Now, some of you may have heard of John Wycliffe, um, and the Wycliffe Bible translators are named after him. And he was really the kind of the first effort to translate the Bible into English. And um, he was a little before the Reformation. And then if we move over to the right, we see 1611, we see the King James Bible. Um, and that comes out, it's sometimes called the authorized version. And that's where we really see um, you know, the whole Bible 
coming out and it, it was a big well-financed project by multiple scholars financed by the king and so that's why it's called the king james bible so the wickliffe bible was sort of a one-man effort to put the bible into la- the english language the king james bible was more of a scholarly academic effort financed by the king to really um translate the entire bible and What's interesting, if you want to read a really fascinating book about the journey of the King James Bible, uh, there's a book called the, um, I think it's called The King's Secretaries, and it's about the history and the creation of the King James Bible and how they even had to invent new words Mm. that would standardize doctrine um, that we still use today. And it really became a, a critical tool, not just in Bible translation, but in standardizing the English language and taking um, the English language and kind of putting it in writing. And everything was just like so focused around scripture culturally for those people that it really became kind of a an important cultural moment. So if you want to read, a, if you're a history buff and you're interested in that sort of thing, the King's Secretaries is a is a fascinating little look at that. So, so how did we get from King James, yeah, to the Passion? Like, yeah. to, how did we get from this yeah. with the thous and the these to? Oh no, you didn't. Like yeah. we, to me, there's many translations that people can choose from, and yeah. you know what fits your fancy. How did how did we adopt all these other translations? Yeah, that's a really good question because what happens? One thing we have to understand is that that languages change over time. We said earlier that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek or Middle Greek. Well, there was also an earlier Greek, classical Greek, and then there's the Greek that's spoken today. And so languages evolve. We have another cool graphic here from the wesleyhuff.com website that kind of shows this journey in in English of, um, we have old English, here's the, the, from the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. You can see it on the right there in the modern English translation. But if you go back to the old English and you see those words there, it's like, what are we even talking about? Mm-hmm. But still English. And that's old English. And then we have middle English. And you can see there in the green, that would be middle English. And then we have King James English. As we move to the right in the maroon, and then we have modern English. So these are all English. But languages evolve and change over time. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about where are we at today, now when we go to the Anglican church, they still use, the re- we just went to Lessons and Carols last night, mm-hmm. they were reading from the King James yes. Bible, you know, so it is a lot of these and nows. But then when we look at the modern translations, you know, that's, it's a result of Language changes. Now, if you're really conversant in Elizabethan English, Shakespearean English, reading the 1611 King James Bible, probably no problem for you. But if you're not as conversant in that, it's going to be a lot more challenging. So we have um, kind of three basic approaches for modern Bible translations today. And we have this really cool chart, again, from WesleyHuff.com. So, Lessons and Carols is so long. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. 
Yeah. Okay, back to the chart. All right, so let's go to the chart. Okay. So this is kind of cool. Um, I really like how he, he laid this out here. So you can see that there's three different types mm-hmm. of Bible translations. And then you have this alphabet soup of all of these letters, you know, and and so we're going to just talk through a few of these. So on the left, you have the what are called formal equivalents. I prefer to call them word for word translations. Mm-hmm. These are more like I looked in the original language and I try to find a word that matches yes. in, in English. So earlier we talked about the NASB. Uh, Susanna was asking about the new Revised Standard Version, the NRSV, the King James Bible, the New King James, um, and the ESV. These would all be in that bubble of the word for word. So if you want to find something and you don't have mastery of the original languages, getting a word for word translation can be very helpful. And it tries to, to be very faithful in, in the word translations. So now let's look at the second bubble there in the middle is the, what's called the dynamic equivalence. Um, I prefer to call it the thought for thought translations. So sometimes it's not helpful to translate just a word because it doesn't really tell us what it means. Mm -hmm. Um, But dynamic equivalent translations are thought for thought. The most famous one would be the NIV Mm -hmm. um, or the New Living Translation. Those are kind of the two big ones. Um, The NET, New, New English Translation, is growing in popularity. So uh, those would be all thought for thought translations. Now on the third bubble, we have paraphrases. Now paraphrases generally start with an English version. So they might start with um, an ESV over here in the word for word, Mm -hmm. but then they, they kind of summarize it into English, into everyday language. So some popular ones that are out there right now are the message or um, the living Bible. If anyone's old like me and you can remember the living Bible from the 1970s, that's a popular one. Passion. The passion um, is could potentially be a paraphrase. We'll talk a little bit more about that if we want to toward the end. But um, uh, and then what it has there at the right is just kind of. It's sort of and the rest, which are sectarian translations. And this is where the New World translation would be, um, is more of a, a sectarian translation where it's used by a specific group of people. Mm-hmm. The rest of these are all kind of interdenominational. They're, they're um, you know, uh, more in, in line with um, historic Christianity. So anyways, this is the big picture. Now, I want to talk about an example here of, Formal equivalence versus dynamic equivalence. Let me ask a question yeah. really quick. Yeah. Um, that when and where has on YouTube. The question is, what is the difference between a translation and a version? Or are they the same thing? You're just using oh, those yeah. words interchangeably. Yeah. I Generally, those are just interchangeable words. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking about a formal translation, you know, those are kind of the two first two bubbles. The word for word, thought for thought paraphrases are not translations. Mm -hmm. So those might be more like a version. Okay. But sometimes those two words are used interchangeably. Interchangeably. Okay. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
So when we think about translations, like I'm going to use a classic example of the Greek word sarx, um, which means flesh. flesh. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it does. And- <laughs> a hermeneutics class. <laughs> so um, sarx means flesh. So if I'm going to be a word for word translator, I'm going to translate it as flesh. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that's mm-hmm. not. And so when I get to the writings of Paul, he says that you would no longer be controlled by the flesh. Well, what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Versus in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus came in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Oh, he has flesh and bones. The incarnation of Jesus. Okay. So a word-for-word translation just says, here's the word sarks. So I'm going to translate it flesh. But when I get to Paul, what does it mean to say that I no longer walk in the flesh? What does that exactly mean? That's not terribly helpful. Helpful. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the NIV translates it as sinful desires, I think is what they translate it as. So that is a thought for thought. They're kind of what I call um, interpreting it for you. Here's what this means. So they're taking the word sarks, which means flesh, but then they're translating it, or really what they're doing is interpreting it for you to mean sinful desire. Mm-hmm. And that's where it can get really tricky because thought for thought translations can be helpful because they can be more clear. They're often more clear to read and more and but sometimes the agenda of the interpreter can come through mm-hmm. and that's where it gets kind of tricky. And that's if you don't know how to look in the original language. Yeah. You don't know what's going on. So that's that's where it gets a little sticky. So. OK. All right. You want to look at some comments? Sure. Yeah. Let me scroll up. Um Let's see. There are people who are liking your idea to teach Greek. Um, Facebook comments. When and Where says, that's a good point, Monique. I think learning Hebrew is a good idea, but our churches are currently so hard to be, or, I'm sorry, our churches are trying so hard to be culturally relevant that they made some compromises in quality. Mm. Let's see. Okay. Facebook Oh, uh, Susanna's asking me on YouTube, um, down at the bottom there, as a Methodist, we now use the Common English Bible, but they had used the NRSV. Do you know this one? I don't know the Common English Bible. I I have heard of it, but I haven't looked at it. I will tell you that when I was taking um, Greek and Hebrew, I would often use the NRSV. Well, I guess I could say this now. I've been not a seminary for 25 years. That's kind of my cheat. When I got stuck, because that's pretty good. And it would, if I ever got stuck in my translations, I would go look at what the NRSV did, because it was usually pretty good. Thanks for that tip. I'll be using that later tonight. (laughs) So, yes. Um, Let's see here. All right. Anything on on Facebook? Mm, Just some back and forth between people. Okay. NASB is my favorite, Sharon says. Oh, yeah, it's a good one. 
And I, I like the NASB. It's a little bit harder to find these days, but it's still out there. Some of us barely, barely made it through Spanish. You better come on. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So some people talking about the New World Translation. Yes. Have you ever used the Bollinger Companion Bible? I've never heard of that one. Nope. I haven't heard of that one. So if you haven't heard about it. I know I haven't heard about it. <laughs> okay. So right. then. So which approach is better? That's that, always the next question. Yes, That was going to be like, which one should I go for? Yeah. How do I know what to grab? So let's look at Monique's homework that a little elf gave me. She did a little translation project in her hermeneutics class. So tell us what, what you were doing here. What was your prof having you do? So the column. Chantal. Stop it. <laughs> the column, that's my government name. The column in white is um, the original in the King James. Okay. And so then I have to look at all of the different translations and see where um, like there would be differences. Okay. Or major differences. So let's look at a couple this of these. This was my very first project. Okay. So walk us through what you found out here. So in the NASB, okay, so in the King James, it says, um, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. Well, in the NASB, it says, do not be surprised. The fiery trial is then translated ordeal, mm. and which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. In NASB, that's translated as for your testing. Okay. There was no real significant changes between um, the KJV and the NKJV. So NKJV is the new, new King, King James. James. Mm -hmm. All right. But then if you scroll, keep going to the right, like when you get to the NEB, it says, instead of beloved, it's my dear friends. Think it not strange. It's like, don't be bewildered. Okay. Uh, let's see. Concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And then um, the rest of that passage is basically translated as something extraordinary. The NLT was basically the same as the King James, aside from the dear friends. And then you can reach the message and it was like a whole little word salad all by itself. <laughs> and so it was like friends and life gets really difficult. Don't jump to conclusions in the very thick of what Christ experienced. So it, it had its own way of, of paraphrasing and bringing things into, I would say, the most not basic of, of ways to explain it, but the, I would say just the most conversational yes. um, way of conversation. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. I try. I'll be here all week. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you, as you've done these projects, I'm curious, like, have you, what have you learned from that in terms of, do you have the rest of it? Oh yeah. Cause cool. it was like seven pages, eight pages. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to oh. make people sit through so, all of no, that. I'm, no, I'm just going to say, though, okay. right. as you go up, um, we we were asked to look at questions like, and we've talked about this in um, the, like, how to interpret the Bible episode. episode. But we then, from each one of those translations, we ask major questions per verse. So, you know, 
what did it mean in the original context? Like when you look back at the original Greek, what did beloved mean? Did it tra- was it translated as beloved, dear friends, brothers and sisters? Like how should how should or how would an original reader have interpreted this? Was is it something like friends or was it something even more intimate than that? Brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um. It, there were just a lot of questions that could be sparked from that, and then we would go and find the answers and find out what it really meant in the original context like how should i be interpreting this verse and so it turns out to be a very useful project because i then can understand like when i get down the line to something like the passion or the translation the message i can be missing out on some very valuable insight for the convenience of conversation and that's the great trade-off of bible translation of this whole thing is accuracy versus readability. That's the one thing that people need to have as a takeaway from this whole conversation Mm -hmm. is that everything boils it down to how do I balance those two things, accuracy versus readability. If I don't know anything about the original language, so I can't get underneath it, I can't go look, um, then I'm stuck in that tension of accuracy versus readability. Mm -hmm. And even though something might be accurate, it might not be very understandable. Yes. And just because something's really understandable doesn't mean that it's doesn't accurate. Doesn't mean it's accurate. And that's what I found is that it's great to have something that is so conversational that is in like 2020 English for me. And yet if I don't under if I don't um if I can read it and that's great, but I'm not getting an accurate meaning to what the author was intending, then you're, you're still at a loss. And so then that makes me ask the question of how do some of the paraphrasing translations guarantee that they're actually getting the correct meaning from the text? Yeah. So there's some great questions coming up on YouTube. So let's let's start getting into it here. Linda says, is the ESV a blend of thought for thought and word for word? I would say no. It is a primarily a word for word translation. Um, it, it is, falls on our scale here more on, um, in the formal equivalence or word for word. Now, I think that the ESV does a pretty good job of trying to make it readable, but it is primarily an, uh, a word for word translation. Um, let's go back to the questions here. Um, my family's denomination used KJV when I was little, so my first memorizations were full of eths and these and thous. Mm. And then we switched to NIV, then ESV, and now I'm in a new church using NLT. This raises a really important question that I think it's important for parents to consider. I know that Bible memorization has fallen by the wayside in a lot of churches when you're a kid, but I want to be an advocate for please have your kids memorizing scripture, mm-hmm. a lot of scripture because that's when their brain is like the most optimized to to get it inside. But think carefully about what translation you have them use. Don't have them memorizing the message. Mm -hmm. You know, pick something solid like ESV or maybe the NIV, but, you know, give some thought and intention to one, having them memorize scripture and two, what translation you're going to have them memorize. Yeah. Because they are far more capable of memory work then, then we realize that's how God has designed their brain at that age. Um, let's see. 
Uh, Linda is also asking, in your opinion, which is the most accurate and readable? See, that's the thing. That is the great tra- that is the great dilemma of of Bible translation. And uh, I I had earlier uh, my Bible here that um, I use in my everyday my everyday Bible is the NIV. And I've had this Bible since 1992 when we got married, and so it's the 1984. NIV study Bible and I had that Bible a long time my goodness gracious and it's man this is my friend if it I and and I want to encourage you to like get a paper Bible uh you know electronic Bibles are handy but I want to encourage you to get a paper Bible make friends with it I keep a pencil right in my Bible so I'm always underlining circling writing notes make friends with your Bible this should be be your friend and then you come back to it years later and you think oh yeah I remember when I was dealing with that issue um, and wow, how far I've come, you know, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not struggling with that anymore. It can be a great, um, encouragement, but, you know, write in your Bible, make it your friend, write in, the, get one that has margins that you can write in. You can see here, I've written, you know, and, uh, we've been going through the book of Hebrews. I got all kinds of writing in my Bible up here. So it's, you know, make friends with it. I got my pencil every day writing in there. So you have your Bible. I like the NIV. Um, but the ESV is also solid. Some people I like the ESV prefer that. Yeah, I think those are two very solid, very solid choices. Letitia, hey, Letitia, she asking what about CSV and ESV? Those are the two I have been reading back and forth in. Yeah, let's yes. look at it. Can we look at our chart again? Where the CSB falls? CSB. So that's on the thought for thought. Mm-hmm. Um chart and then the esv is sort of at the other you know it's nearby i mean they're neighbors esv is more on the word for word but um you know they're probably both pretty solid i'm not as familiar with the csb it's a newer translation but um you know it's it's definitely in the mix then we have another comment Sumi says, I often use my Strong's Concordance in my Bible studies. Mm. How helpful is that compared to actually learning the languages themselves? I am so glad you asked that question, Sumi. So uh, Strong's Concordance, let's talk about concordances because there was another uh, question about concordances. Uh, what is a, first of all, what is a concordance? A concordance is a tool that is in some study Bibles, um, but you can find them also online of where a word is used in scripture, like all the uses Mm -hmm. of a particular word. Does it also give you the definition of the word? Sometimes, yeah. It usually is a very brief definition. So um, I don't know if uh, Bob can, Bob's very skilled, if he can go to Bible Gateway um, and pull up Bible Gateway for a minute, and I'm gonna show you kind of a quick way to do it online. There's a couple of resources. So if, if we select here, go on the selection tool there. No, uh, oh, see where it says New International Version. Yeah, select Mounts's. Go up. Mounts Reverse Interlinear. Go there. And this is only for the New Testament. But now type in John one. Yeah, and then search, and then scroll down. So you can see here that um, the words are in English and then underneath is the Greek. So click on word, logos. 
it'll highlight it and it'll show you the places and then you can click on it and it'll take you to some a list of places where that word is used and that's a type of concordance mm -hmm. of, is where are other places where this word is used now personally i don't find concordances overly helpful um a lot of the time <laughs> that's just being honest um for me they're kind of an old school tool that I, I don't find helpful most of the time you have to kind of know how to use them properly what's more helpful is to look at the context and how is this word used in the context because remember the bible didn't come with a dictionary attached to it um so we determine what words mean by the way the author uses the words in the surrounding context. Yes. So Douglas is asking, would you agree each denomination acclimates itself to a certain translation? Disciples of Christ use NASB, Catholics use RSV, etc. Yeah, that's actually a very perceptive question. And that is often the case. Um, like my reformed friends often prefer the ESV. Um, the I think the Catholics use the NAS um, and so there's it, they definitely have different preferences for translations oftentimes Linda says a text without a context is a con go ahead that's funny <laughs> I like that one let's so, see there was another question uh, what about the NIRV for kids to memorize yeah so that's a great question I am not this is my opinion that's all it is. I'm not a huge fan of having a child memorize uh, the reader's Bible or children's Bibles. Have them memorize the full adult version. It doesn't matter if they don't completely understand it. Their brain will develop and they will understand it. Mm -hmm. But it, that's the time of stage of life where you want to mm -hmm. get the, the scripture memory into them. Mm -hmm. And so focus on understanding later but focus on memory when they're younger. Mm -hmm. And so you want to have the full thing in their memory because that's what's going to stick with them for mm -hmm. the rest of their lives. That's my opinion on that. So, um, okay. Uh, what else do we got here? Lots of good questions. Yeah. So which approach is better? I think my, my answer to that is it depends. It depends on who you're choosing a Bible for. Mm -hmm. um, if it's for children and it's for reading, I think, you know, choosing a reader Bible is, is okay. If it's for memorizing, I would have them use an adult version. If you're trying to buy a Bible for a new Christian, you might, you might want to consider more of a thought for thought mm -hmm. Bible, because can we just like be honest, like the Bible is a book that is very culturally distant from us. Yes. It has its own inherent obstacles. Um, you know, so starting people off with a thought for thought Bible, I think is a, is a good, is a good way to go. Um, uh, you know, I will actually say um, in all of my time working with kids, I always use the NIV. I didn't even do the readers, like, a reader version. Um and they were able to to handle it, especially my older kids. They were able to handle it. And for the younger kids, we just would break it down and make it palatable for them. But I do agree that having them memorizing the the regular, quote unquote, 
um, wording and working with them in that. Like, I think that what I've noticed, and I, I did a lot of work with, um, like, kindergarten through sixth grade. My my young ones were able to, to handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think um, Zoe is making an important point on YouTube. She says... Formal equivalent gets a bad rap for readability, but I read the NASB and I have no issues with understanding it. I I, I kind of agree with you, Zoe. Um, I find many of the the word for word translations understandable, but I never know how much of that is due to the fact that I was raised in the church, and so I kind of know the lingo. Um, so you know that's always a little question mark in in my mind. Um, my cousin Jeremy Webb is on. Okay. And he would like to know, my church uses ESV in worship service. For years, I used it to teach my middle school class before I wanted the consistency. I switched to NLT. Is readability made, it's readability made a big difference. Your thoughts. I agree with you, Jeremy. That was kind of was my point earlier is, you know, picking a Bible sometimes depends on who it's for. My husband loves the NLT. He uses that in our family devotions. It is a real translation. It, it It's very readable. Um, although sometimes I will tell you in our family devotions, when he it's his turn to read, he'll read it and we'll all be sitting there like, what? What? It, it's so different than, than the NIV that the rest of us are using. We have a really hard time reading with him. And so sometimes we will have to read it again in the NIV, but the NLT, I, I think, that especially if you're dealing with young people that don't have a church background, it can be a good on-ramp. And that was, I would say, like for a new Christian, if you're buying a Bible for a new Christian, mm-hmm. the NLT could be a good option. Now, if you're if you're doing preaching or you're teaching your Sunday school class, you're doing serious Bible study, but you don't know the original languages. Okay, maybe that's you. I would recommend getting one in the word-for-word column and getting one in the thought-for-thought column and then comparing. And what's great about that is Bible Gateway is there and you can do that really easily. But if you're going to do serious Bible study, you're a, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're you're leading other people through scripture or you're trying to engage in serious Bible study for yourself, get and you don't have a mastery of the original languages, go there. You know, you you want to want to compare and contrast. And you should be getting you should be able to get pretty close to what it is. You can use tools like on Bible Gateway, you can use Mounts's reverse interlinear for um the Greek for for the New Testament. You can look up Words and simple definitions there. That's a great tool. So that'll be of some help. I'm trying to look on. Oh, wait. Someone, I just saw another one. Okay. Taylor says, I've always, on, on YouTube, I've always preferred the ESV or NIV, but I've heard questionable things lately. Okay. Scroll down. Let me see it. Taylor? Uh-huh. Taylor Owens. All right, there, no. right there, right there. I've always preferred E in it, but I've heard questionable things. No, I haven't heard any questionable things. I mean, okay, this is this brings up a really good point, Taylor. Gender thing? I don't know if she's ta- she didn't specify if they're gender issues or translator issues. 
But here's the thing. Um, you want to choose a Bible. Like, let's let's talk about the message for a second. The message is a paraphrase written by Eugene Peterson. And it is on our little list there as over there as a paraphrase, okay? When you look at those other translations, NIV, ESV, those are all done by large translation committees where they have peer review mm-hmm. and back and forth and pushback. And um, I always recommend if you're going to get a Bible, do not get one that where there's only one person who's done the work because their own um, bias mm-hmm. can come through, their theological bias can come through, whether intended or unintended. I'm not yeah. meaning, that, meaning that in any sort of nefarious or derogatory way. But the best way to overcome those biases is to use multi, where there's multiple translators with peer review. And you have Old Testament scholars, you have New Testament scholars, you have specialists in each book, and they all check each other's work. And you can find out who was on the translation committees. Just look in the front pages of the Bible, those pages everybody skips. You can see how many people were on the committee. And if if you start looking on there and you see, oh, well, they were from this seminary and this seminary and this seminary, and and you know like kind of what the the slant is of those seminaries, you can kind of get a feel for where the, Mm -hmm. you know, how they're dealing with the text. That's what you want. You want one where they're kind of weeding out people's individual bias. So going back to Taylor's question, you know, the NIV, ESV, they both have reputable scholars behind them. They have peer review. They have large translation committees. Um, So those are fairly reputable. Now, if you're asking about the gender issue, um, which somebody had made a comment earlier about gender accurate versus gender neutral, that's a whole other other conversation. I'm not really sure what that was. Okay. Wow. I feel like learning quite a lot. Now, okay, with the whole with the whole situation of, you know, that one person who's sitting alone in his closet just translating his little heart out versus the the group of people who are, you know, reviewing and confronting each other on errors and things yeah. like that. Would you say then that you it is possible to get bad translations? Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think Jeremy's got the right idea here. I really like his comment on on YouTube. He says, I use ESV for lesson prep and then I teach with the NLT. I think that's mm-hmm. really a good way to go. Um, kudos to you, Jeremy, for for doing that, because I, I really think that that's that's a good balance. Um, yeah, I mean, look. We, we mentioned earlier a couple of efforts made by single individuals. We mentioned Jerome, St. Jerome translating the Bible from Greek into Latin. And that was pretty much a single person effort. We mentioned the Wycliffe Bible that was pretty much done by John Wycliffe. Um, so I'm not saying that a single translator is like inherently... Always going to be always going to be bad yeah. or wrong, but the standard practice today, especially since the King James and the sixteen eleven, is the use of committees, and I think that's a far better way of doing mm-hmm. it 
versus Eugene Peterson's The Message, which is a paraphrase, or something like The Passion tra- Translation, which I don't actually think it's a translation. What's the difference between The Message and The, tra- and the Passion? So two different authors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a gentleman named Brian Simmons who's behind The Passion Translation. It's often used in kind of Bethel, IHOP, neo-charismatic, um, some people call it the um, New Apostolic Reformation stream of Christianity. And um, it's a single guy. He was, I think he worked for New Tribes Missions and did a Bible translation for um, some people in like Central or South America, something like that. And so he has some knowledge of the original languages, but then he's trying to kind of put it into a very readable style for um english and there's there's a lot that i like about the passion translation i'm not 100 percent sure it's a translation but i mean sometimes if it he, wouldn't be a translation it would be a, a kind, of, kind of more of a, a paraphrase mm-hmm. yeah but um he really wants it to be a translation so i think that's why he's putting it in those words and he did have experience as a missionary Bible translator. So I'm trying to have some great, be gracious about it. Um, uh, Mike Winger, who is a big YouTube mm-hmm. uh, teacher, pastor here in Southern California, he's doing a big study right now on the Passion Translation where he had like the top Bible scholars who have been on Bible translating committees, like for the NIV, ESV and stuff evaluating the passion translation and he's doing he calls it the passion project and he's supposed to reveal those results later this month so i'm going to be very interested in seeing those results and because i think he has like tremper longman involved he's a big old testament guy he's got like top level translators involved in this to evaluate the passion translation but if people want like a deep dive into the pros and cons of the passion translation I'd recommend Mike Winger. He's got several videos uh, on his YouTube channel where he's done deep dives. But this month he's revealing this this big thing he's been working on, this passion project, as he calls it, wow. where he's really looking at it in detail. So, okay. Jeremy says, this might be getting too much into textual criticism. Could you discuss the claim that translations after the KJV leaves out verses? Oh, Jeremy. Uh, <sighs> Okay, so yes, this is more of a textual criticism question. Um, And if people want to know, they're asking in the chat about the Mirror Bible. I think Mike Winger also has a video about that. Maybe Laura or Jeremy can go on uh, Mike's channel and look that up. I think he just did a video on that a few weeks ago. Um, Okay, so this business about why does the King James... Um, have some verses that the NIV, the NASB don't have. This is this is the question. <sighs> Can I explain this without graphics? Um, so the King James was was based on the manuscripts that were available in 1611, and. As more discoveries have been made of more ancient manuscripts, we can see um, through 
the the scientific discipline of textual criticism, um, where the Bible had additions and corruptions that came into it in the medieval period. And so the King James Bible was based on later manuscripts. The NASB, NIV, the more modern translations are based on more ancient manuscripts and that are thought to be more accurate. Mm. So we could do another show someday about textual criticism if people want to know about that whole train. That's a whole other train. Jeremy, don't do that to me again. Okay. That's where he's at. All, All right. right. I think it's about time. Gregory says the point, point one, the best translation to use is the one that you will read. I don't know about that um, because if you get like a, a translation that maybe isn't translating, and you can tell me if I'm wrong because Gregory might be coming through with the word. Um, if you get a translation that isn't accurate, like it, it, it isn't, yeah, if maybe you're, it, if you're calling the message a translation, I would say that might not be the best option. Yeah. If you're saying like, well, I'm deciding whether NIV or ESV. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I would agree with that. Mounts has gone to great lengths to make the Greek language accessible. Uh-huh. I mean, accessible to English readers today. There are a variety of resources available to bridge the gap between the biblical scholar and the layman. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I showed you Mounts's reverse and interlinear on Bible Gateway, that's a great free resource. If, you, if you're doing a Bible, um, like a, if you're a Sunday school leader or something, you might want to consider, and maybe Bob can get it for us, or we can have our chat moderators put it in the chat box, um, Mounts' Expository Dictionary. Mm-hmm. I love the Expository Dictionary because if you're going to buy like one tool, that's really the one tool that I recommend. I, I think most tools really aren't that useful, but Mounts' Expository Dictionary is one that I do actually recommend because it's it's alphabetized in English. <laughs> so you don't have to know the original language to look up the word Logos. Mm-hmm. You can look it up under L. So um, this is a great resource. It, it categorizes both Greek and Hebrew words. You can look them up in English and it will give a nice discussion and definition of the words in context in, in everyday language. Like, Normal people can use this tool. Yes. Yeah. I'm not recommending like Brown Driver and Briggs or um, some of the other more advanced tools that you really have to know, um, like the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. Those are things where you really have to know the original languages to benefit from them. But Mounts' Expository Dictionary, regular people can use that. Definitely one I'd recommend. Awesome. Any last words about this before we go on to the Tweet of the Week? Um, probably just a really quick mention about study Bibles, because that comes up a lot. So what about study Bibles? This is, this is a very common question. Do I recommend a study Bible? Well, the first thing you have to know about a study Bible is basically it's a handy commentary. (laughs) It's like you're taking the Bible and then you're, you're attaching a commentary to it so that you aren't carrying around two books. You know, you're just kind of putting it together. So when you're going back to my, um, uh, version of the NIV study Bible, you know, the, the, the notes here are at the, at the bottom in, in this, these are handy. It's just, yeah. it's just a handy commentary. That's what it is. So what to look for is, okay, I, I'm going to like tell you how to, this is what I look for in a study Bible. It's going to be really hard to find, but maps, 
maps have are being eliminated from study Bibles and it's a crime because <laughs> you literally cannot understand the Bible if you don't have maps. Maps, the places in the Bible, you must take the time when a place is mentioned, take the time to go look it up. Yes. Because it has a purpose of why it's there. Uh, we were reading Luke last night. Yes, because the whole 20-page paper that is due <laughs> is on Luke. That's why we went to the Tweet of the Week. People. So <laughs> we're, we're reading about the woman, and she's from Sidon or something. And I stopped you. I said, well, now, why is that place important? And you said, I have no, I have no idea. idea. And I said, well, because that's supposed to key you in as a reader that that's a Gentile. Mm-hmm. So you have to know your geography. Yes, I have so, my little my little map books open. Yep. And like when they mention going up to Jerusalem, they're really going south most of the time. <laughs> yeah. But Jerusalem's on a hill. That. But Jerusalem is on a hill. So you're so, always going up. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. So make sure that you get a study Bible that has like introductory pages. It tells you about like the author, the place, when it was written. It has a little outline. That's critical. If you have study Bibles that have charts, timelines, that's cool. Less important, I think, is a concordance. You can find that stuff online. But then the notes. Decide what kind of notes you want. Do you want notes on archaeology? Do you want notes on historical, cultural background issues? Do you want notes on theological perspectives? If you buy the Geneva Study Bible, you're basically getting Reformed theology as your commentary. Hmm. That's what it is. If you're getting the John MacArthur Study Bible, you're getting all of John MacArthur's sermons distilled into a commentary that's in the Bible. I always recommend getting a non-denominational study Bible because then you're you're getting something that's that's more broad. I like the um, it's way down there at the bottom, but one of the reasons I have the Orthodox Study Bible is it gives me short commentaries from the Church Fathers. So that's a little bit about. Study Bibles. Okay, and now it's time for a very special announcement. We have a special video. Oh, I thought we were going to the Tweet of the Week. I guess, not, you know, the line. Yet. People, I'm just here. Well, I saw the ugliness of hatred, and I said, Lord, if I get out of this jail alive, I want to preach a gospel that is strong enough to destroy some of this madness. When I was woke, I did not realize how much resentment I harbored. By that time, I had unwittingly hurt many people and severed friendships. Then came the voice of God in verses commanding Christians to love one another. I wasn't just a victim of America's racist systems. I also perpetuated the racism I claimed to hate. learning that God has a much better way to bring justice and unity than I do. And there's grace for all of us. I had been so blinded by an ideology that divided people by skin color that I missed the blessing of seeing the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. We need to try to turn this into a language of love. We need to turn it into beauty. What does it mean to confront injustice without compromising truth? 
in our divided age where things seem to be burning down all around us. Well, I think there's a better way forward. I think there's a more biblical way forward. There it is. Tomorrow night. Tomorrow night is the launch party. And if you hold that book up one more time, I would just like everyone to know that those are my arms, people. If you didn't know, that's really me. Look, it's my arm right there on the front. (laughs) So tomorrow night is our launch party live stream with Dr. Thaddeus Williams and a slew of surprise guests. Yes, it's going to be so good. So make sure to go uh, pre-order your book. If you haven't. Yes, and pre-ordering helps tell the publisher that we want this content. We want non-critical race theory oriented content. Yes, and and y'all have been coming through. Yeah, Yeah. so keep it up. Uh, Share share about the live stream and tune in tomorrow night for a lot of fun that we have planned on the the, uh, including some book giveaways. For the launch party, it's going to be on the Center for Biblical Unity um, what do you call it? Facebook page and our YouTube page and then on Theology Mom Facebook page and on the Thaddeus Williams public um, Facebook page. So it will be streaming there and we will be giving away a couple books. We got some surprise guests. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a really good time. Meet up with some old friends, let's just say. Yes. All right. And now it's time for the Tweet of the Week. That's really cute. Okay. The tweet of the week is Dr. Walter Williams passed away this week. Yes. He passed away on the first. The second. I thought it was the first. It says the second. Cheers. All right. So here's a little quote by him. Prior to capitalism, the way people amassed great wealth was by looting, plundering, and enslaving their fellow man. Capitalism made it possible to become wealthy by serving your Your fellow fellow man. man. We almost had Dr. Williams on the show. Yes. We couldn't quite right. figure out the time. Get, get there, yeah. Because of his bedtime and it being on in the east. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. Um it it, uh, it he's he's if you don't know who Walter Williams is, he's a wonderful um intellectual economist and he was a black conservative. Him and Thomas Sowell were pretty much the sole black conservative mm-hmm. movement for many for years. For many years. Um, he actually, Walter Williams grew up with Bill Cosby. Oh, really? Uh-huh. They they um, spent a lot of their childhood together. And um, he was against, like, not apartheid, affirmative action and low income, like, not low income, but income equity kind of programs and really thought that those things hindered the black community I was more first, than helped them. I was first introduced to him. He used to sit in sometimes for Rush Limbaugh back in the 90s. And that was really the first time I'd ever heard of um, him and followed his work since then. He's, he was just a great intellect. So if you've never heard of Dr. Walter Williams, go on YouTube, check out a video uh, by him this week. His work is very important and his legacy really is part of what has given birth to mm-hmm. many people like you and finding, you know, more conservative black voices yeah. in that space. And go check out our previous episode, Was Jesus a Socialist? Yes. Um, which I think that uh, Dr. Williams would have really resonated with many of the themes that. that we talked about there about 
Um, loving our neighbor through free markets. Yes. So I see people asking um, for the video that we just played for Thad's book. You can find it on the CFBU Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page, Theology Mom Facebook page, and um, YouTube. YouTube. Yes. Yeah. So, all right, my friends, Monique has to go write a paper. She told me I have to end the show. So it's been fun. <laughs> It's time to go, folks. No, 20 pages not going to write themselves. All right. So we'll see you tomorrow night on the live stream. See on you the tomorrow. Launch party. Pray that I finish. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.